Years ago, I was listening to one of my favorite authors, a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. He was talking on a podcast. Uh, for the life of me, I don't remember what the podcast was that I was listening to, so I can't quote him directly from the recording. But in the episode, Gladwell was talking about an experience that he had had while he was at a coffee shop in Los Angeles around the time that the recording of this podcast happened. Gladwell said that he likes to write his books in coffee shops, and so while he was sitting in a coffee shop, and I'm pretty sure he said it was in Pasadena, he said that he overheard a couple of girls talking at a table near him. And he mentioned that this coffee shop was near a well-known seminary in that area, so I'm pretty sure that it was probably Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena. And what caught his attention about the conversation was that the two young women were talking about relationships, and one of them was sharing about a budding relationship that she was excited about, and the potential of that relationship leading to marriage. Now, what stood out to Gladwell was not the conversation, but the fact that the girl who was talking about this relationship, uh, she said to her friend that she's really not sure about what the Lord wants her to do in this situation. And she said that she needs to pray about it to find out if this was the Lord's will that she'd move forward with this relationship. Now, Malcolm Gladwell has a background with faith and with Christianity, a connection with the church. I don't know exactly what his connection is to it, but it seems that he probably grew up with some connection to Christianity and the church. So he understands this idea of there being a God that you pray to and that you seek for his, his will and for his direction. And so he wasn't entirely shocked by the concept that there are people who are seeking God for God's will, but it did stand out to him as being unique that these two girls that are talking, who clearly come from a Christian background and probably go to the seminary there or went to the seminary there at Fuller at that period of time, were saying, you know, here's this situation in my life, the potential of a relationship moving towards marriage, and I need to find out if this is God's will, if this is what God wants me to do. And that was unique, according to um, Malcolm Gladwell, because that's just not at all the way that people think in 21st century Western culture. That kind of a mindset is actually more and more unique in our culture. We live in a culture that values, really in the extreme, independence, personal independence and autonomy. We have sayings in our culture like, you need to do you, or you need to be true to yourself. We tell people that they need to follow their heart. We will hear people say things like, I've got to be me. I need to chart out my own path. Or like Elsa in the hit movie Frozen from years ago. I remember when my, my kids were quite a bit smaller and Frozen came out. My two daughters, they used to love to sing the song from Frozen, the first one, where Elsa is singing Let It Go. And in the song Let It Go, Elsa sings these lines, and I remember these sticking out to me. I still remember my, my kids were really small. My girls were in the backseat of my car. I was driving them to school, and they were singing along to that song. And I had never really listened to the words before, but this is the line that stuck out to me from that song. It says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That encapsulates a cultural mindset, a worldview or philosophy that dominates in Western culture here in the early 21st century. So with that kind of mindset, 
It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. With that as a cultural mindset, the idea of submitting your will and your decisions, the path that you are going to take, your desires, the, the idea of submitting all of those things to another is the height of foolishness in Western culture in the 21st century. This is how we live. This is the philosophy that we impart to our kids in our culture, that you've got to be the one who chooses everything for yourself. In fact, as I was thinking this week about that line from Frozen, from Elsa in that song, Let It Go, I, I also started to think about another Disney movie that came out recently, or within the last several years, Disney's animated feature Moana. The hit song from Moana was called How Far I'll Go. And in the song, Moana, Moana the, the main character in this, this animated feature, she is struggling with doing what she knows she ought to do as a member of the tribe that she's a part of. She's on a, an island in the, you know, you know, kind of South Seas, if you will. And she's a part of this tribe and she's the daughter of the chief of this tribe. And in the movie, she's wrestling at the beginning with what she should do. She knows that she ought to do the, the right thing according to the tribe and according to her position as the daughter of the chief. But she's wrestling with breaking free, just like kind of Elsa in that song from Frozen. And in her song, she, she says these things. I can lead with pride. I can make us strong. Talking about within her tribe as the, the oldest daughter of the chief. I can lead with pride. I can make us strong. I'll be satisfied if I play along, if I go along with the way things are supposed to be, if I do the things I'm supposed to do. But then she says this, but the voice inside sings a different song. The song is an internal monologue where Moana feels called to be, uh, you know, setting out on her own adventure to, you know, go out following this bright light off in the horizon to set out on her own and chart her own course. And there's a line she talks about in the song. There's a line that she shouldn't cross, but she feels like I want to cross it. And she wants to know what's beyond the line. And in the song, she asks the question, will I cross that line? And of course, Moana crosses the line and in the story, of course, as she crosses the line, that means that now she can do what's right for herself and for the tribe and she fixes everything because that's how things are in our culture. And so in our culture, we have this mindset, you do you. You've got to be true to yourself. You've got to follow your heart. Don't let anyone hold you back, whether you are Elsa or you are Moana or you are some little kid growing up in elementary school and you're looking forward to the future. You can't let anyone hold you back. That's the mindset that dominates our culture. So Malcolm Gladwell was struck by the uniqueness of a different mindset. And I'm sure that there would be many in America at this point in time, in 2022, who would shudder at the thought of saying, I need to ask God for what he wants me to do. I need to seek God's will and that he may want me to do something that I don't want to do. For our culture, that mindset would be being inauthentic, using kind of the, the lingo of our day. If you were to submit your will to God and maybe he tells you, no, that's not what I want you to do, you would not be being your authentic self. 
you need to make sure that you press on and do you and do your own thing and follow your truth and be your authentic self. But the mindset of those two girls that Malcolm Gladwell overheard at that coffee shop, probably near Fuller Seminary there in Pasadena, as one of them is saying, you know, I'm really interested in this relationship, but I got to ask the Lord what he wants me to do. I got to pray about it. This is the right mindset for a child of God. It is countercultural to 21st century Western culture, the culture that we live in, but it's the right mindset for a child of God. And that brings up this concept, a child of God. What is that? What is it to be a child of God? Am I a child of God? That's certainly what the children of Israel were. In the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 14, which is where we are at today, beginning at verse 1, we read these words. Look at the opening words of Deuteronomy 14, verse 1. You are the children of the Lord your God. If you're somebody who underlines things in your Bible, you might want to underline those words. You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. For, notice this, this is really key, you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, this is an interesting passage of scripture because this right here in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, this is the first and only time that the words children of the Lord or children of God are used in the Old Testament. This idea of being a child of God is seen quite a bit in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, this is the first and only time that we come across these words, the children of the Lord or the children of God. The people to whom Moses was speaking here in this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 14, they are called many times the children of Israel. But now Moses says here in this passage, you are the children of the Lord your God. You are his children, a separate and holy people whom he has chosen out of the world to be a special treasure. And, and when you think about that, those are powerful and beautiful words. You are a separate or holy people that God has chosen to be a special treasure for himself. You are God's children. Powerful, beautiful words. And in Christ, if you are a Christian today, this idea and concept, it's true for you as well. The Apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now you are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. Moving from there to the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 1, kind of echoing the same sentiment that you are a chosen people of God. He says in Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Truly beautiful words that we have from the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul here from the New Testament, from 1 Peter and from Ephesians chapter 1. And they, they teach us such an important and simple truth and point. They, they teach us that I am a chosen child of God. Now, 
there are a number of important things to say about this idea that I am a chosen child of God. The, the first thing that we could say about this is that um, we, we should answer the question when we're talking about being a chosen child of God, we should answer the question, but aren't all people the children of God? Because I've had conversations with people before, maybe you have had conversations with people before, and you talk about being a child of God, and they say, well, every single person is a child of God. So aren't all people the children of God? And the answer to that question, according to what the scriptures say, is no. All people are the creation of God, but not all people are the children of God. The children of Israel were a people, those in the Old Testament, Old Covenant, the children of Israel were a people who were selected out of all of the people who are on the face of the earth. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. They were selected out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be a special treasure for God, for himself. They were a holy people, and they were selected for a special and specific task that God was calling them unto, which we'll talk a lot more as, about as we go through the book of Deuteronomy. They were God's holy people, covenanted in a relationship with him. And in a similar fashion, you and I, if we are Christians, we are chosen in Christ Jesus. So, so that's the first thing. We got to answer that question. Aren't all people the children of God? No, only those who have been selected by God to be his people. Second thing that we should note or we should consider from this idea of the children of God, that I am a chosen child of God, is answering the question, how did we, or how do we become the children of God? How did the children of Israel, thousands of years ago, how did they become God's chosen people and become his own children? How do I today become a child of God? Well, the children of Israel, they became the children of the Lord by birth into the family of Abraham. And, and what made Abraham so special? Why did he get to be the one through which God would select these people? Well, they were a chosen people, the children of Abraham, because Abraham became a chosen child of God by faith. As he put his trust in God, he became a child of God by faith. And in very much the same way, you and I today can become or do become or have become the children of God by the new birth through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and in there, I brought up a new concept, which is important to at least speak about for just a moment. And that new concept is the idea of the new birth. And that idea of the new birth comes from Jesus's conversation with a very religious Jewish man named Nicodemus in the Gospel of John chapter three. Jesus, in that exchange between Nicodemus, he explained that connection to God and connection to God's kingdom, being a child of God, it, it comes by being born again. Jesus said this to Nicodemus in John chapter three, verse three. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And when asked about how this new birth comes about, because Jesus makes this statement in John chapter three, verse three, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And when he says this, Nicodemus is, is kind of, his mind is blown. And he says, how can these things be? You know, how, how's a man gonna be born a second time? Does he enter in a second time into his mother's womb? So he couldn't grasp it. And so there's this exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter three, you can read it later. And Jesus is explaining to him how this comes about. And Jesus teaches him that this would come about by faith. So the new birth is the result of faith, or I would rather use the word trust. It's not just mentally acknowledging a truth. Some people think that's what faith is, but 
Faith involves trust or entrusting yourself to someone. So as Jesus and Nicodemus are having this conversation about how the new birth is brought about, Jesus says these words, most famous words in all the Bible, most translated words in the Bible. John chapter three, verse 16, we read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So Jesus taught Nicodemus there in that passage in John chapter three, that connection to God and his kingdom, becoming a child of God and one who will inherit everlasting life, it comes through trusting in God and the new birth that comes about by trusting in God. The apostle Paul, also in the New Testament, he says very much the same idea that this new birth and this connection to God as his children, it comes about by faith. Galatians chapter three, verse 26, Paul says this, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And this idea is seen all over the scriptures in the New Testament, that we become the children of God by trusting in God, by believing in him. In fact, in the opening statement of the gospel of John in John chapter one, we read these words. These are so important. John chapter one, verse 12, as many as received Jesus, that's the hymn in this passage, as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So just a moment ago, I made the point that I am a chosen child of God. And, and how can I know that I am a chosen child of God? I know that I am God's child because I have trusted in Christ. That's what the scriptures make very, very clear. As I read through those passages of scripture that I was just highlighting, John chapter one, verses 12 and 13. John chapter three, verse three and three, verse 16. Galatians chapter three, verse 26. As you take what the scriptures say, I know that I am God's child because I have trusted in Christ Jesus. Now at that point, before I go any further, I just wanna to say to whoever might be watching this right now, if you don't know that you are the child of God, you can know with certainty that you have become God's child and, and all the benefits and blessings that are associated with being his child, which we'll talk about more in just a moment. You can know that you are a child of God, not just simply hope, kind of wishful thinking, hope that you are a child of God, but know with certainty that you are a child of God by trusting in Christ Jesus, not trusting in yourself, that you and your good works and your religiousness or your whatever it may be is going to make it possible for you to have a relationship with God. You can know for certain that you have that connection to God, that you are his child, that he is your father by trusting in what Jesus did on your behalf, that he bore your sin on the cross. And just as we read there in John chapter three, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, trusts in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. If you've never done that, I wanna encourage you, just wherever you're at watching this, you're watching it on your phone, watching it on a TV, maybe watching it on the Sunday morning that this releases from our church, or you're watching it a year or five years from now, I don't know, wherever this message is gonna go out on the internet, you can know that you are God's child if you trust in Jesus Christ entrust yourself to him, call out to him in prayer and say, Lord, I believe in you and I trust myself to you. So if you have trusted Christ today and you have received him into your life, then you are a child of God. You have been chosen by him to be his people. And as the scriptures say, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, God's own holy nation, his own special people. But that leads us to another important question to ask as we're thinking about this concept of being the children of God. Third important thing to think about in thinking about this concept of being a child of God. 
what does it mean that I am a child of God? What does it look like to be a people unto the Lord, his own people, those whom he has chosen to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth? What does that actually mean? Because those are big words and maybe you've never thought about it before. Like what's that really mean to be a child of God? There are many things that it would mean, but I just want to think about a few things that it would mean to be a child of God. First thing that I think is important to think about is that it means that I have a new relationship with God. When I become a child of God, that implies that God is my father. And since he is my father, what does that mean for me? Now, I, I get it that the idea of father can have all kinds of, it's like a quagmire, if you will, of all kinds of issues. Uh, you know, it can, you know, in the, the modern lingo of our day, it can trigger people to say that God is father. But that's how God reveals himself in the scriptures. I am his child because I've trusted in Jesus Christ and I have become an adopted child into the family of God. He is my father. What's that mean? Well, well judging by what the scriptures say, not our misconceptions of what father is because of the bad examples of that we've had in our culture. But what does the Bible say when it shows us that we have this relationship or can have this relationship to God? Well, since God is my father, I can trust that he will take care of me. I can trust that he will provide for me. I can trust that he will protect me. Now, I'm grateful. I have I grew up with a great example of a father. So this idea of a father is not a big deal for me. But even with the great example of a father that I have, one who provided for my family, one who took care of me and my, my brothers and my sister as we were growing up, that great example, as good as that is, the father that is revealed to us in the scriptures, he, he far surpasses that. And so since I am a child of God, God is my father. And that means that I can trust that he will take care of me, provide for me and protect me. In fact, Jesus in his message in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, your father in heaven knows the things that you have need of and he will take care of those things. And so we don't have to worry about those things. So first thing that this tells me when I think about God being my father is that I have a new relationship with him, that he is my father and he will take care of me and protect me and provide for me. The second thing that I understand in realizing that I'm a child of God and he is my father, it means that I have special access to God as father. In Ephesians chapter two, the apostle Paul writes that through Jesus, we, through him, Ephesians chapter two, verse 18, we both have access by one spirit to the father. So because I have this relationship, I am God's child, he is my father, I have access to him. My, my kids, they don't have to ask my secretary for some of my time. They don't have to come into the office and ask one of the other pastors, ask Pastor Mark if they can go into my office. They just come into my office at any time boldly. And that is the kind of access that I can have to God because I'm his child and he is my father. In fact, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, we're told that we can boldly come before the throne of grace so that we might obtain mercy and grace in our time of need. Now, in ancient times, you would not have had access to a king to come boldly into the throne room. There's no possible way you could go into the throne room in ancient times and, and survive even unless you were invited to come in. But as a child of God, 
I can go boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and grace in my time of need. So the first thing that we discover when we realize that I'm a child of God is that I have a new relationship to God as father. And that means I can trust him to take care of me, to provide for me, to protect me, all those things. Second thing, it grants me access. The third thing I think is important to think about is that having this new status means not only that I relate to God in a new way, but it also means that I relate to this world differently. And in this passage that we are in today in Deuteronomy chapter 14, we have two clear ways that we are to live differently in the world as the children of God. The passage opens there in Deuteronomy chapter 14 saying, you are the children of the Lord, speaking to Israel. And because you have this relationship with God, because you relate to him as father, because you have access to him, that is going to change your standing in this world. You're a child of God. You're of the family of God. And as one who is of the family of God, that changes the way that you interact in this world. So in this passage, we have two clear ways that we, as the children of God, both the children of God in ancient times, the children of Israel, and the children of God now under the new covenant in Jesus, two very clear ways that we are to live differently in the world as the children of God. Now, the first one has to do with what you do to your body or what you do with your body. So the first thing that we're going to see and how we are to live differently in this world is what we do to our body or what we do with our body. And the second thing that we're going to see in this passage is what we put into our body. So when you become a child of God and God is your father, it changes the way you live in this world, what you do to your body or with your body and what you put into your body. So first we're going to look at what you do to your body. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses one and two again. We read it just a moment ago. There we read, you are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. For you are a holy people to the Lord and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Listen, if, if Malcolm Gladwell, my favorite author, one of my favorite authors, if he, a man who at least has a marginal connection to Christianity and the church, at least that's what I can tell from reading his stuff and listening to him over the years. He has some sort of connection to the church and to Christianity through his, his parents. If he finds it striking and he finds it unique that a child of God would seek God's guidance on the decision of who to marry or when to get married, Imagine what those who have no connection to Christianity, those who are just your friends at work or school or in your neighborhood who have never gone to church, who don't have any connection to Christians. Imagine how weird they must think it is to find out that people live like this right here, to find out that people follow a principle like what we find in this passage. And, and what is the principle that we find in this passage? Well, it could be simply stated like this. As a child of God, I am no longer the Lord or master of my body. Could you imagine anything more countercultural or controversial in the United States of America in 2022? And not just the United States of America, in very progressive, atheistic, or at least agnostic California in 2022. Can you think of anything more countercultural? than saying, I'm a child of God, and because I'm a child of God, I no longer am the Lord or the master of my own body. I'm no longer the governor 
of my own body. It, it may be, and actually it probably is, not just possibly countercultural, completely controversial and countercultural in 2022 to have this kind of mindset. But it is what this passage teaches. And it is not only in the Old Testament. I mean, this is Deuteronomy, this is the Old Testament, but this idea and this concept that I am not the governor, Lord, master of this body, of my life, after I become a Christian, after I become a child of God and God is my father, that's not only taught in the Old Testament, it's also in the New Testament. If you look at the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul, the apostle, Paul, who's the writer of 1 Corinthians, he is writing to a church in a culture 2,000 years ago that was not all that dissimilar to Californian culture in the 2020s. And so there in that passage, the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 15. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot, a prostitute, is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord as a child of God, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Therefore, flee sexual immorality, verse 18, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. So this is what you do with your body or do to your body. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. This is what you're doing to your body. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Circle those words. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, God's possession. This is a challenging principle that we have from Deuteronomy chapter 14 in the Old Testament and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in the New Testament. I am not my own. This is not my body. This now is the possession of God. As a child of God, God is my father. I now am no longer the Lord or master or governor of this body. It's a challenging principle. Now, if you have been around the Bible for a while, you may realize, or you, you might even see, if you look at this passage, if you have a Bible open, Deuteronomy chapter 14, and you look at verses one and two, if it's got one of those center column references, or there's little, little uh, footnote references in your Bible, you might note that this passage points you to another Old Testament passage. It correlates to a passage in the law, in the Torah, in the book of Leviticus, where we read these words in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28. Leviticus 19, 28, the, the law says, you shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord. What on earth is being said here in this passage? God says, I am your Lord. I am the master of you because you're a child of God. You are my chosen people, my own special treasure, because I possess you, you are mine. I tell you what you can and cannot do with your body. And I'm telling you that you shall not make cuttings in your flesh. We have a problem with cuttings in our day and nor shall you tattoo any marks on you. So Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28 and uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse two. These are the passages from which people will make declarations against tattoos. Maybe you have heard a Christian say before, Christians should not get tattoos. So we, we do have to ask. We've got to ask the question, is the Bible here teaching that we should not get tattoos? Because if it is, we may have a significant problem in our culture. I don't, I don't have any tattoos. 
but not because of this passage. I've just never been interested in them. But I know a lot of people, especially my age and younger, who have a lot of tattoos. And so we got this big, huge thing in our culture, body art. In fact, I was, I was getting off the freeway just the other day. I was driving to go teach somewhere, and I was getting off the freeway right next to this big, huge bus that was called the Tattoo Bus. So instead of just having a tattoo parlor, now we got like tattoo on wheels, and it just goes wherever, and they'll tattoo you, tattoo you in the bus. So body art is a really big thing. Sometimes you'll hear Christians say, the Bible says, Leviticus 19, 28, Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 and 2, that you're not to make any marks on your skin. So is the Bible teaching that thou shalt not get tattoos? Well, as I think that we will see as we continue through this passage, it, it isn't the letter of the law that I think we need to focus on here or to consider here. It is the underlying spirit or principle of the law that we really need to think about, which, which is in this passage that as a child of God, I am no longer the Lord and master of my body. It's not just about tattoos or marking my body or cutting my body. Now, one of the keys to interpreting these words in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, uh, to interpret them correctly, is when we read the words there in Deuteronomy 19, 28, and, and um, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 and 2, and Leviticus 19, 28, is the words, for the dead. There was some sort of ritualistic idolatry involved in this practice of tattooing and marking your body that Moses is speaking against. So uh, all that to say, I do not believe that this is talking necessarily against the modern practice of tattooing. Now, there are people who disagree on that. There's been Christians who've written about this before. I'm just simply saying my opinion in studying this passage as I have recently and have in the past, I don't think that Leviticus 19:28, Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2 are necessarily saying thou shalt not tattoo because there was some sort of ritual or idolatrous practice here in tattooing yourself for the dead. So there was some sort of weird thing going on here. So the question will come, is it possible? Am I allowed to? Can I get a tattoo? Is it prohibited for Christians? And I don't think that you can make a dogmatic statement for or against tattoos from this passage. But I do think that this passage teaches that I am not the master and Lord of what I do to or do with my body. What that means is I do need to bring issues like tattoos or any other thing that I might do to my body or do with my body. I need to bring issues like those things to the Lord. I need to bring them to him in prayer, subjecting my decisions, my desire, and my will to the Lord to receive his direction and his input. This is exactly what Malcolm Gladwell was talking about that was so unique to him on that day that he was sitting in a coffee shop there in Pasadena and here's these two ladies, young ladies talking about this relationship and I need to ask God, do you want me to get married? Do you want me to marry this person? Is this the time you want me to get married? This is so countercultural to our way of thinking in 2022 in the United States of America, especially in Southern California. But this is what the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament teach that if I am a child of God, then that means I need to go to God and say, is this something you are okay with me doing? I need to pray about it. I need to look to the scriptures, look to the word of God and see, is there any principle in the word of God that this would be going against? I need to bring my decisions, my desire, my will to the Lord, my path to the Lord. And I need to give it to him, trusting that he is my father and that he's going to protect me. He's going to provide for me. He's going to direct my path. In fact, the scriptures say in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all of your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways, acknowledge him, 
and he will direct your path. So we do, if you're a child of God, if you're a child of God, and that's an important caveat here. If you're a child of God, you should go to God and bring your desire, your decisions, your will to him in prayer, asking him to give you direction through his word, through other brothers and sisters within the body of Christ whom you trust, who walk with wisdom and follow after the Lord. You need to bring those things to the Lord for God's input. Why? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 6, my, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I am not my own. I, the scriptures say, have been bought with a price, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, not of silver and gold or things that may corrupt and fall apart, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I have been bought with a price. And therefore, I should seek to glorify God in my body, with my body, which belongs to him. This is not my own, if you will. I, I've been bought with a price, price. So the first principle in this passage is that God gets a say in what I do to or with my body. The second principle that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 14 is that God gets a say in what I put into my body. Now, before I read this, um, remember, as I do read through this, that we are looking not at the letter of the law, not the particulars of everything that that Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 3 through 21, which we're going to read in just a moment. I want you to be looking for the principle or the spirit of what is being said in here. Not the specific letter, but the spirit or the principle of what it is that God is saying. When Moses says these words in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 3, you shall not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals which you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the mountain goat, the antelope, the mountain sheep. And you may eat every animal with cloven hooves, having a hoof split in two parts, and that chews the cud among the animals. Nevertheless, verse 7, of those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves, you shall not eat such as these, the camel, the hare, the rock hyrax, for they chew the cud but do not have cloven hooves. They are unclean for you. Also, the swine is unclean for you because it has a cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud. You shall not eat their flesh nor touch their dead carcasses. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. You may eat all that have fins and scales. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. All clean birds you may eat, but these you shall not eat the eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the red kite, the falcon, and the kite after their kinds, even raven after its kind, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, the hawk after their kinds, the little owl, the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, the carrion vulture, the fisher owl, the stork, the heron after its kind, and all the hoopy and the bat. Also, every creeping thing that flies is unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. You may eat all clean birds. You shall not eat anything that dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who is within your gates that he may eat of it, or you may sell it to the foreigner. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. What on earth is this all about? Again, I said before I read that long passage of scripture, don't look at the particulars. Don't look at all the specific animals that you can or can't eat. Instead, we want to look for the specific principle in this passage. What is the principle? What is the spirit of this passage? And I believe it is this. As a child of God, I am no longer the Lord or master of what I put into my body. I said in point number three, similar point. 
as a child of God, I am no longer the Lord or master of what I do with my body or do to my body. But as a child of God, I am also no longer the Lord or master of what I put into my body. Now, obviously, this passage deals with the dietary laws of Judaism. When you hear of someone who is eating kosher, they are following the dietary restrictions of Leviticus. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the books of the Bible that start the Bible, they are eating according to the dietary restrictions of Leviticus or Deuteronomy, which include what we just read in this passage. So does this passage mean that I, as a child of God in Christ, under the new covenant, as a Christian, that I should keep kosher? Well, you certainly can. I mean, if you, if you desire to eat kosher, you can certainly do that. If you choose, you can follow after kosher laws and restrictions. But that is not the focus of this passage. I don't believe that's the way that we should apply this passage to ourselves under the new covenant. And we find in the New Testament that the dietary laws of Judaism, they're, they're not extended to non-Jewish Christians under the new covenant. So you don't have to follow after the kosher laws or the dietary laws of Leviticus and Deuteronomy if you're a Christian. But you certainly could if you want. So the larger principle here is that when I became a child of God by faith, the status of my life changes in the way that I live in this world. I no longer am the master of what I do with my body or what I do to my body or even what I put into my body. At the very least, as a child of God, God gets a say in what I do to my body, with my body, and put into my body. This is exactly what was kind of amazing or stood out to Malcolm Gladwell on that day when he was listening to these two girls talk in that coffee shop, that they were subjecting their decisions and their life to the Lord. And they were saying, I need to pray about that. I need to find out if God is okay with this, if he wants me to do this. So at the very least, as a child of God, God gets to say, or he gets a say in what I do with my body, to my body, or what I put into my body, which means God may reveal in and through his word that there are certain things that I shouldn't ingest. This is the point at which you begin to ask very practical questions. Is it okay for a child of God to smoke tobacco? You need to ask your father that question. You know, there are some people who have real strong statements about that. And I think that it is a valid thing as a child of God, because I am not my own, to go before the Lord and say, is this something that is allowable? Is it okay for a child of God to smoke? You need to ask your father. Is it okay for a child of God to consume alcohol? You need to ask your father and you need to consult the scriptures. What do the scriptures say about that? Is it okay for a child of God? This is kind of a, a weird one that is starting to come up more and I think it's gonna become even more pronounced in the next you know, short term, if you will. Is it okay for a child of God to partake of shrooms? You know, these are natural. That's what I've been told. You know, they naturally grow. If they naturally grow, God wants you to use whatever is natural. You can take the herb of the field and, you know, consume the shrooms. So is it okay for a child of God to partake shrooms? Again, I would say you need to ask your father. What do the scriptures teach about these kind of things? Is it okay? I've had this question many, many times. Is it okay for a child of God to ingest or smoke marijuana products? Again, you need to ask your father and find out what do the scriptures say? Now, I have some strong opinions about every single one of these. And if you come and talk with me or send me an email, I'm glad to answer some of those questions. But I do think it's very, very important that we as children of God, we need to be those that have such a relationship with God that we can boldly go to his throne of grace and ask him, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? You need to ask your father. 
And it's not just what you put into your body, but again, it's what you do with your body or to your body. Is it okay for a child of God to get tattoos? You need to ask your father. Now to an outsider, to the Malcolm Gladwell sitting in the coffee shop overhearing the conversation, or maybe even not a Malcolm Gladwell, but to the person who's never gone to church, because Malcolm Gladwell has gone to church. He has a background with the Christian faith in some way. He knows some of these things. But to your neighbor, the person who sits next to you in that college classroom, the person who works with you on that construction site, to an outsider, even considering things like this seems absolutely absurd because you need to be your authentic self. That's what we are told in our culture. No one gets to tell you what to do or what not to do. You are the one who captains your ship. You are the one who has to decide for you what is your truth. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I, I get to cross whatever line I want to. That is the mindset of our culture. And not only is that the mindset of our culture, that is the philosophy that we are being taught through pop culture, whether it's Moana or Frozen. It's not just us adults. That is what our kids are being taught. I mean, I was kind of, kind of uh, blown away a little bit when I remember hearing my daughter sing that song. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. I'm thinking to myself at that point in time when like my four-year-old is singing that song at the time, I'm thinking, maybe that's not the philosophy I want my kids to be learning. So it, it starts a conversation with them about that's actually not the way that we live because why? I'm a child of God. I've been bought with a price. And there actually are rules for me. There actually are guidelines that my father has put in place for my good. That's what we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 12 a few weeks ago. These things were written for our good. And there is a line. And that line is for God's children. And, and realize that there are some people that just aren't God's children. Now, notice in this passage of scripture, as we've been going through Deuteronomy chapter 14, there are two grounding statements in this passage. Two things that ground this idea that God is the one who gets a say in what I do to my body or with my body. God is the one who gets a say of what I put into my body, there are two grounding statements that tell me why this is okay. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2, and Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 21. We read there in those verses, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 14, 2. Look at Deuteronomy 14, 21. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. What is the grounding statement for God being the one who governs what I do to my body or with my body or put into my body because I am a holy person unto the Lord. These commandments in this passage, they were for God's people. Those were for, for those who were his children. Notice in this passage, take note in verse 7, that when it's talking about what is unclean or clean for the children of Israel to eat, notice that it says, verse 7 of Deuteronomy chapter 14, they are unclean for you. This is not a rule or restriction for every single person in the world because not every single person in the world is a child of God. But for you, if you're a child of God, this is unclean for you. Verse 8, swine is unclean for you. Now, again, uh, I think that these specific dietary restrictions were for those living under the old covenant system of Judaism. In Christ, there is different, you know, rules that we follow, if you will. So can you eat bacon? That's a good question. Uh, I think you can. So that bacon burger is okay, probably. So, but notice there, as a child of God, there are certain things that are unclean for you, verse 7. Verse 8, swine is unclean for you as a child of God. Verse 10, you shall not eat of it, whatever it was he was talking about. It is unclean for you. Verse 19, it is unclean for you. Four times... 
we have this emphasis in this passage that these restrictions were for the children of Israel. These weren't for everybody. This isn't a rule for every single person. It is a rule for you, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. In fact, this passage explicitly says that this is not a requirement for those among you who are not the children of God. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 21. You shall not eat anything that dies of itself, but you may give it to the alien who is within your gates. This isn't talking about aliens, little green men. This is talking about foreigners in your midst. Those who are not the children of God, they can eat things that are restricted for you. They can do things that are restricted to you. So you may give it to the alien who is within your gates that he may eat of it, or you may sell it to the foreigner. So these things were okay for people who were not the children of God. But as a child of God, I have a new and different status with this world, which means that I relate differently to this world as a child of God. Does that mean that as a child of God, I am less free? Because it seems like the foreigner and the alien within the gate, they, they can kind of do what they want, do what you will. Does that mean that I'm less free? Did I have more liberty before I became a child of God? Well, in one sense, yes, but also the answer is no. So it's yes and no. Before you were a Christian, you were free in regard to righteousness. But before you became a child of God by faith, you were actually a slave of sin. What does that mean? Well, let me read to you from Paul's word, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament book of Romans, Romans chapter six, he says this in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of God, servants of God. You have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Before you were a child of God, you could put anything you wanted into your body, whatever you wanted. You could do with your body whatever you wanted. But at that point in time, you were slave to sin and you were living in bondage under sin leading to death because the result of those things that you're now ashamed of as a child of God, those things lead to bondage and they lead to death. But now you have been set free from sin and you have fruit in your life to holiness leading to everlasting life. And so we read in this passage, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses one and two, you are the children of the Lord, your God. Verse two, you are a holy people to the Lord, your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You were bought with a price, the scriptures say. Therefore, because God purchased you out of bondage to sin, slavery to sin, to make you your, his child, therefore, honor and glorify God with your body, with your spirit, because this is God's. He made you his child. And, and this is what it looks like to be a child of God. Now, I realize that there is a lot that we have unpacked in this passage of scripture, but there's one final thing that I think is really important to bear in mind as a child of God by faith. One of the pitfalls in taking heed to these principles is that we can begin to distance ourselves from other people who do not take heed to these principles, both inside and outside of the church. What do I mean? Churches have been divided by people who say things like, you are not really faithful to God if you engage in that thing or if you watch that kind of entertainment or if you drink those kind of beverages. 
you're only holy if you do these things. And if you don't do those things, then we need to cut you off and excommunicate you. So first, we need to recognize that each of us individually stand before our Father on some of these things that are, shall we say, disputed issues. We should be those that do seek for the Lord's direction in what we put into our bodies and what we do with our bodies or do to our bodies. But we should not judge others by the standards that we have set for ourselves. I, I kind of mentioned this passage last week in Romans chapter 14, but let me read the whole section. Romans 14 verse 1, it says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things, disputed things. For one believes that he may eat all things. One person says, I can eat, you know, bacon. Another person says, no, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. See right there for the vegetarians among us, just joking. Don't, don't get upset at me and email me over that one. But let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. So the, the vegans and the vegetarians don't get mad at people who eat meat. And let him who does not eat judge him who eats for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he shall be made to stand for God is able to make him stand. If, if one person thinks that tattoos are okay and another thinks that they're not, it isn't your place to be the arbiter or the judge. If one person thinks that you have to keep kosher and another person says, no, you don't really have to do that, you shouldn't divide a church over these things. To his own master, you stand or fall. These are not issues that we should judge one another. Now, there are certain things that are very clear, like uh, adultery is sin. Sexual immorality is sin. So, so we can say, hey, you, you cannot continue to be a part of this body as a family of God if you're going to continue in those things. That's, there's spiritual or church discipline that we see in the scriptures about that. But many churches have divided over things that are not explicitly stated in the scriptures, over what day of the week you worship, over what mode of baptism, over what way in which you partake of communion, over is it okay to listen to secular music or not, or is it okay to watch you know, sports on TV or not, or whatever it may be. People divide over these things that they ought not divide over. If God has given you a conviction and you need to walk in that conviction, then you need to walk in that conviction, but you ought not judge other people with that. So if God has made it clear to you that alcohol is off limits, then alcohol is off limits. And you should know what the scriptures say. I mean, the scriptures make very clear, do not be drunk with wine. So if a person's getting drunk, they have gone over the limit of what the scriptures say. And for some people in the church, they, they have a limit that God has given to them. You shall not drink alcohol. And for them, it would be sin, but they ought not judge somebody else over this. So we shouldn't divide among those who are in the church or separate ourselves, distance ourselves from those in the church because they don't follow the same standards or principles that we follow. We should pray for them. If we feel like, man, God needs to reveal this to them, well, pray and God may reveal it to them. But we also need to be careful that we do not distance ourselves from those whom God desires to reach, who are not yet Christians, who are outside the church because of our standards and our principles. In the New Testament book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, God is desiring to reach Gentile people, non-Jewish people with the gospel. But Jews looked down upon Gentiles because they considered those Jews to be unclean, largely because they didn't partake or they partook of unclean meats. So Jews would look down at Gentiles saying they're unclean because they were eating foods that were unclean, according to the dietary restrictions of the law. Now, I don't have time to go into that passage in Acts chapter 10, because this message is going longer than I planned that it would today. But one of the early Christian leaders, uh, the apostle Peter, he receives a vision from God, and it's in the New Testament book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. 
He receives a vision from the Lord having to do with these unclean foods. And God gave this vision to Peter so that he and other early Christians, all of whom at that point in time were Jews, would recognize that they were not to distance themselves from those whom God was desiring to reach. And so it gives us a very simple principle that we wrap this up today with. And it is this simple principle. As a child of God, I should not distance myself from those whom God desires to make his children. So yes, we are to be in this world and not of it because I'm a child of God. And my body has been purchased by the Lord, by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so as a child of God, as I have this new relationship to God, I have a new way in which I relate in this world. And that means that God has a say in what I do to my body or with my body or put into my body. And yet, even though that's true, and even though I am holy unto the Lord, and you are holy unto the Lord if you're a Christian today, that doesn't mean that we should separate ourselves and distance ourselves from the very people that God desires to make his children. The same Peter who received that vision in Acts chapter 10 would later on write these words, which I shared with you earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people. So what? For what? Here's the, the reason that he's chosen you that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now you are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. God chose you to be his own special separate people, to be priests, to carry the good news to those who have not yet received the grace of Jesus Christ. So do not distance yourself from those whom God is desiring to make his children through your witness. Proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God wants to reach other people through your life with his mercy and his grace. So Father God, I pray as we close today that you would do a work in us, that we would come out and be separate from the things of this world that are not honoring and glorifying to you. And Lord, if there are certain things in our lives that we need to cut out or cut off, Lord, give us the strength by your spirit to do so, that we would walk in a way that brings glory and honor to you. But Lord, help us to be a light to other people, not to separate ourselves and distance ourselves from the people that you want to reach. God, use your people this week to shine as a light to those who are in darkness, bringing your grace and your mercy and your good news. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.